Here it is. From deep inside your audio device of choice. Ladies and gentlemen, we start this week's edition of the program that you're listening to, whose name shall be mentioned shortly, with uh, an item of news about the land of 15,000 princes. Our freedom-loving friends in Saudi Arabia. You may have heard the name Joe Paterno. He was a football coach at Pennsylvania State University. Um, Joe was um, ultimately fired for keeping a, a convicted, an ultimately convicted child sex abuser, Jerry Sandusky, on his staff for decades. Joe has a son, Jay. He was an assistant football coach at Penn State. Yeah, his dad gave him the job. What's your point? Uh, since his dad was uh, released from his responsibilities, Jay has been uh, defending his dad's honor in public, def- uh, arguing that Joe Paterno was treated unfairly. But he has another job. No, not uh, his seat on Penn State's Board of Trustees. That's not what I'm referring to. He's writing for a news website funded by the government of Saudi Arabia. Where where better to get your news? My visit to Saudi Arabia changed all my perceptions. It's the headline on his op-ed in the Arab News. I think they might he might have met his preconceptions, but his perceptions, so his hearing and his olfactory senses have been changed. Um, the Arab News is a subsidiary, ladies and gentlemen, of the Saudi Research and Marketing Group. That is closely connected to the Saudi royal family. Seeks to boost the country's image. Its chairman is Prince Badr bin Abdullah bin Mohammed bin Farhan al Saud. He's the Minister of Culture and the Secretary of Long Last Names. Saudi Arabia uses sports related things like WWE shows and golf tournaments to sell itself. Now it has Jay Paterno writing for it. While I may have come, he writes, to believe, uh, come believing it was a closed country, wanting to turn its back on the rest of the world, the opposite was true. In everyone we met, from routine interactions with ordinary people to bigger events, I found in the Saudi people a fierce pride of place in their home country. Rather than being a nation closing its collective mind, I met many young people sent by the government to be educated in the West and then to use what they had learned to help build the Saudi future from within. He acknowledges the United States and Saudi Arabia have societal differences. But what I found is that the people of both nations are more alike than we think. Unquote. Jay Paterno. He he says, The Crown Prince's visit to a number of countries played a great role in highlighting the potential and investment opportunities in the kingdom. Unquote. That's the only mention of the Crown Prince. Nothing about any bone saws or anything. Paterno is identified as a writer and consultant on politics, leadership, crisis, communications, and public relations. And uh, way down at the bottom it says, views expressed, by, views expressed by writers in this section are their own and do not necessarily reflect Arab news point of view. Just a, a nutty coincidence, I guess, this time around. Speaking of which, ladies and gentlemen, Has it dawned on you, as it did on me, that the last 30 days or so have been bookended 
by two incidents, two moments, in which the president has been um, persuaded. Use a nice, non-disparaging word. Persuaded to change his mind, to change his uh, course of action. The first time by Ann Coulter. The second time this week by Nancy Pelosi. I think he'd rather fight men. Hello, welcome to the show.
From Santa Monica, California, the home of the homeless, I'm Harry Shearer welcoming you to this extremely non-special edition of After Last Week. This is just a, a regular edition of the show. And now, ladies and gentlemen, news of the warm, won't you? You can't be honest that some of them are special and some of them are not. What can you be? Soft, listen. I guess president, but we can listen to the war. Uncertainty surrounding electric utilities in California has led a major rating agency to downgrade Southern California Edison and San Diego Gas and Electric. The uh, agency cited the ongoing threat of climate change-driven wildfires and the potential bankruptcy of the Northern California utility Pacific Gas and Electric. Both of these utilities, Southern California Edison and San Diego Gas and Electric, are in Southern California, hence the name. S&P Global Ratings Actions made clear the concern is not limited to PG&E. In the legislature in California, there's been little appetite to assist PG&E, despite its threat to seek bankruptcy protection in the face of billions of dollars in costs related to deadly wildfires in the last two years. But the downgrades of the other two private utilities could prompt lawmakers to reconsider. That's a report from Cal Matters, reporting on California Matters. It confronts the um, downgrades possibility, uh, what is seen as climate change-related impact on corporations' bottom line, which in turn will be passed along to investors and customers. Thank you. Edison and San Diego Gas and Electric did avoid junk bond status, unlike PG&E. The actions, however, will raise the utilities' costs of borrowing money. In downgrading Edison, Southern California Edison, S&P, Standard & Poor's, cited three elements. Edison experienced catastrophic wildfires in the last two years because of climate change. We expect this trend will persist. What makes them think that? Furthermore, we assess that California offers insufficient regulatory protections. Lastly, the swift deterioration of PG&E's financial health only heightens the uncertainties facing all of California's other privately owned electric utilities. Municipally owned Department of Water and Power in L.A. Not mentioned. What? Standard & Poor's made a similar statement about San Diego Gas and Electric, though added the company's effort to mitigate wildfire is exceptional compared with that of its peers. Edison, urging legislators to act, said, quote, Clearly, changes need to be made so that all California residents can continue to receive safe, reliable, affordable, and clean power. A Democrat who took a leading role in utility-related legislation last year Senator Bill Dodd said it remains highly unlikely legislators would overhaul liability law. That overhaul would be seen as a bailout. Oh, suddenly we don't like those. Okay. Just to keep just to keep on top of it. The past four years have been the four hottest years ever reliably measured. That's according to Berkeley Earth, a nonprofit research group that published its annual temperature analysis this week. The new finding, quote, remains consistent with long-term trend toward global warming, the report says. Don't wake the president. Berkeley Earth is a, according to The Atlantic, a respected scientific organization. It's unusual this news came from it alone. Normally Americans hear about these milestones from 
Their own government, NASA and NOAA, were both due to publish their version of this analysis last week. But, of course, shut down. We actually finished our analysis last week, but held off releasing it in the hope that things would be resolved, said an analyst for Berkeley Earth. But uh, they had to uh, move. The report's overall findings will not surprise most scientists. The European Union's Climate Center has already concluded 2018 was the fourth warmest year on record. The others were the four preceding ones. The report contains plenty of records worth noting. In their own right, 2018 was the hottest year ever recorded in Antarctica, a finding with worrisome implications for sea level rise. 29 countries, including France, Germany, Italy, Greece, and the United Arab Emirates, where temperatures hit 123 degrees Fahrenheit in June, experienced their warmest year ever last year. The report underscores that climate change has already begun and that we're running out of time to keep it under control. Ho, oh, hum. To avoid that world, said the International Panel on Climate Change, rapid and far-reaching energy changes are needed. Meanwhile, carbon dioxide pours into the atmosphere at record rates. And amid mounting calls to phase out fossil fuels in the face of rapidly worsening climate change, the U.S. is doing the opposite, ramping up oil and gas drilling faster than any other country threatening to add 1,000 coal plants worth of planet-warming gases by the middle of the century, according to a report released this week. We are number one. By 2030, the U.S. is on track to produce 60% of the world's new oil and gas supply, an expansion at least four times larger than in any other country. By the middle of the century, the country's newly tapped reserves will spew 120 billion metric tons of carbon dioxide emissions, into the old atmosphere. That would make it nearly impossible to keep global warming within the 2.7 degrees Fahrenheit above pre-industrial average, beyond which the UN scientists forecast climate change would be catastrophic with upward of $54 trillion in damages. The uh, new findings from a report authored by the nonprofit Oil Change International and endorsed by researchers at more than a dozen environmental groups, are based on industry projections collected by the data service Reistad Energy and compared with the climate models used by the UN's panel. The report casts a new light on the impact of the U.S. fracking boom and calls into question the (laughs) Trump (laughs) administration's stance that China remains the biggest impediment to halting warming. China surpassed the U.S. as the world's largest emitter of CO2 in 2007. The U.S. is moving further and faster to expand oil and gas extraction than any other country, said Kelly Trout, the report's lead author. We need to be transitioning off oil and gas. The United States dumping huge amounts of dirty oil on the world market is incompatible with effectively and equitably addressing climate change, so says Kelly Trout. Nearly 90% of new U.S. oil and gas drilling through the the middle of this century is expected to depend on fracking. News of the warm, ladies and gentlemen, a copyrighted feature of this broadcast. I just want to say one word to you. Just one word. Yes, sir. Are you listening? Yes, I am. Microplastics. Think about it. 
Will you think of that? Yes, I will. Enough said. Yeah, just think about it. Environmentalists have identified another threat to the planet in the microplastics department. It's called a nerdle, N-U-R-D-L-E. Word of the day, maybe word of the week, maybe word of the year. This is from Fortune. Costs a fortune to read it. No, it doesn't. Nerdles are tiny pellets of plastic resin no bigger than a pencil eraser. What's What's that? Oh, that manufacturers transform into packaging, plastic straws, water bottles, and other typical targets of environmentalists. The nurdles themselves are also a problem, though, even if you don't transform them. Untransformed nurdles. Billions of them are lost from production and supply chains every year. Lost. We lost our nurdles. They spill in, or, or wash into waterways. A British environmental consultancy estimated last year that pre-production plastic pellets... Nice alliteration there. Are the second largest source of marine plastic after fragments from vehicle tires. Why are they putting plastic in rubber? (laughs) Need you ask, now a shareholder advocacy group, As You Sow, S-O-W, has filed resolutions with uh, major chemical and oil companies asking them to disclose how many nurdles... How can you ask a question like that with a straight face? How many nurdles escape their production process each year and how effectively they're addressing the issue of the escaped nurdles? What's the what's the police code for an escaped nurdle? As justification, the group cites estimates of high financial and environmental costs associated with plastic pollution and recent international efforts to address it, including a UN conference in Nairobi and a U.S. law banning microplastics in cosmetics. Why wouldn't you want to rub plastics on your face? Huh? What's wrong with you? We've had information over the last couple of years from the plastics industry that they're taking this all seriously, said the senior vice president of As You So. Well, they're doing better than I am. The companies say they're, they have set goals to recycle plastics, he says. This is really more of a bellwether moment as to whether they're serious. Companies already participate in Operation Clean Sweep, a voluntary industry-backed effort to keep plastics out of the ocean, back here on land where they belong. As part of an initiative, members are asked to share data confidentially with the trade group about the volume volume of resin pellets shipped or received, spilled, recovered, and recycled, along with any efforts to eliminate leakage. Spokesman for the Plastic Industry Association, which lobbies for the plastic industry, hence the name, said, quote, the provision about confidentiality is included to eliminate competitive concerns that might prevent a company from disclosing this information. Oh, they got more nurdles than we do? The American Chemistry Council co-sponsors the uh, Operation Clean Sweep. In May, it announced long-term industry-wide goals to recover and recycle plastic packaging. There's limited information on the extent of this kind of plastic pollution by U.S. companies. Global researchers have struggled to make an accurate re- assessment. A study last year estimated that 3 to 36 million pellets, that's a nice range, they both have threes in them, may escape every year from just one small industrial area in Sweden. If smaller particles, smaller particles, I say, are considered the quantity released is 100 times greater. You figure it out. 
a British environmental consultancy called Unomia, discovered that nurdles are the second largest plastic pollutant. Not in size, but in pollutant and thing. UK could be unwittingly losing between... Well, we don't want to even go there. They got enough problems in the UK as it is without nurdles. The European Union Chemicals Agency this week proposed a ban on deliberately adding microplastics to products such as cosmetics, detergents, and agricultural fertilizers by 2020 to combat pollution. Gee, you mean we're ahead of Europe? We in the United States? Rip out the front page and tell the kids what a front page was. While you're at it, the tiny bits of plastic pollution end up in waterways and oceans. Blah blah blah. The European Commission, which estimates that between seventy thousand and two hundred thousand tons of microplastics enter the environment each year, another one of those. Yeah, that's a range. Uh, the European Commission had requested the proposals as part of its plastics strategy. The aim is to avoid nearly thirty thousand tons of microplastics ending up in nature. Each year, said the spokesperson for the EU Chemicals Agency. In Helsinki, it um, emerged that agriculture is the largest user of microplastics, according to the spokesman for the European Commission, uh, Chemicals Agency, Matti Venio. He's referring to a widely used technology that encapsulate, encapsulates sorry, agricultural fertilizers within tiny plastic shells that emit them slowly into the soil but leave behind microplastics. So it's not enough <laughs> to put uh, fertilizer into the soil that drains into the rivers and drains into the thing, but you encapsulate them in microplastics so that they're, it's like a you know, time-release capsule. Just like we use. Just one word, ladies and gentlemen. Microplastics. Think about it. Meanwhile, elsewhere in hell.
From Santa Monica, California, this is Le Show. And now, ladies and gentlemen. He's not a general. He commands no troops. He's not an inspector. He peeks at no stoops. He's an inspector general. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, 
this shouldn't come as a surprise, and maybe it doesn't. The Inspector General of the General Services Administration has issued a report finding that that agency, the GSA, ignored guidelines detailed in the in the Constitution. Wow. Yes, the Constitution has an emoluments clause which prohibits federal officials from receiving items of value from foreign governments, and that the GSA ignored those guidelines when it allowed <laughs> Donald Trump to retain the lease of a historic government building in Washington, which has become now the Trump International Hotel. After he became president, it was the old post office. Government watchdog found fault with the agency's review of its lease of the old post office, a landmark building located blocks away from the White House. It was leased by the Trump Organization in 2013. For 60 years, in 2016 and 17, the agency allowed the Trump Organization to maintain its government-issued lease, even though concerns about potential conflicts of interest and the Emoluments Clause were raised, said the IG's report. GSA's decision-making process related to tenants tenant, that is the Trump Organization's possible breach of the lease, included serious shortcomings, says the IG. GSA had an obligation to uphold and enforce the Constitution. Well, duh! However, GSA opted not to seek any guidance from the Office of Legal Counsel and did not address the constitutional issues related to the management of the lease, said the report. The original lease had a clause stating that an elected federal official could not participate in the lease or in any benefit that might arise from it. After the election, the GSA issued a 166-page decision concluding that his company was in, quote, full compliance, unquote, with the lease based on its review of the lease, as well as discussions with Trump Hotel representatives and documents submitted by Trump hotel reps. The decision also found the company met the terms of the lease because the president resigned from a formal position in the Trump organization so he wouldn't receive direct cash from the hotel while in office. But according to the most recent Inspector General report, the GSA ignored issues under the Emoluments Clause that might cause a breach of the lease. Since taking office... (laughs) The president has maintained his interest in the Trump organization against the advice of government ethics experts. He put his interest in a trust company, as you know, is being managed by his two, I'm going to use a term of art here, adult sons, Donald Jr. and Eric. That hotel has been a particular source of controversy. It's become a magnet for lobbyists, foreign governments and organizations friendly to the president's agenda who have given the appearance of gathering at the establishment in an attempt to gain favor with the White House, just a short walk away. The hotel is also the subject of an ongoing lawsuit from D.C. and Maryland, alleging that Trump is illegally profiting off the presidency by accepting payments through his luxury hotel in Washington. Arguments in that case may be coming up in March. The beat goes on. And speaking of beats... Let's beat up the atom. Clean, safe, too cheap to meet. Safe, cheap, too cheap to meet. He's our friend, the atom. Safe, too safe to meet. Safe, safe, too safe to meet. 
Well, we keep being told that nobody really gets hurt in uh, nuclear disasters. <laughs> People actually say that. But then there's the case of an 11-year-old girl who evacuated from Futaba after the Fuk disaster. She, it now turns out, according to the Asahi Shimbun newspaper in Japan, they have newspapers in Japan. Wow. She was likely exposed to radiation levels near the standard set by the Japanese governments, despite assurances that no children were exposed to such high doses. She's uh, exposed, apparently, to a radiation dose of about 100 millisieverts. That's the threshold for advanced or enhanced, enhanced risk of cancer. It's the kind of risk that uh, Dick Cheney likes. It's enhanced. The previously undisclosed case, which was reported to the National Institute of Radiological Sciences in Japan, contradicts the government statement that, quote, there has been no confirmed cases of children exposed to radiation doses of 100 millisieverts or higher. They really said there has been no cases? I guess that's ungrammatical translation. According to the Institute, the case was not disclosed at the time because it considered that the estimate was based on information from the site using a simple monitoring instrument. We want complex monitoring, don't we? And that the figures were not calculated precisely. A uh, radiological technician of the Fook government office engaged in radiation checkup tests uh, on the residents in the area detected 50 to 70,000 CPM counts per minute of radiation when checking the girl's thyroid gland. That's a measurement of radiation emitted per minute from radioactive substances detected by such a device. No documents regarding the case remain. That's a relief. But the figures were conveyed to a team from Tokushima University that traveled to the site to provide support for the tests. Nearly a decade after the U.S. Department of Energy dismantled the Yucca Mountain Repository Project in Nevada, that's where we're supposed to store are high-level radioactive wastes for, you know, 5, 10, 20, 50,000 years. That's not happening. The program still lacks congressional funding to move forward. Some nuclear industry officials are now wondering if it's time to look for another way to dispose of the country's nuclear waste. 80,000 metric tons of utility-spent fuel. We appear, according to one industry official, to uh, be reaching a tipping point where it's no longer making sense to remain focused on the stalled Yucca Mountain project. He was one of three industry officials speaking on condition of anonymity because they're not authorized to talk to the media. I don't, I don't know if I am. Are you? All three support the Yucca Mountain project. This official said he believed the window for fiscal 2019 funding for the program is closed, saying he doesn't see a near-term strategy or a viable pathway. The uh, new Speaker of the House of Representatives, Nancy Pelosi, you know, the one who scared Trump, has voted against legislation aimed at restarting the Yucca Mountain program because of her alliance with Senator Chuck Schumer, the Senate Democratic leader of Nevada, sorry, of New York, against the revival of the project. It's the country's only project to house nuclear waste, don't you know? It was dismantled two years after the uh, Department of Energy 
submitted a license application to the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. The DOE, the Department of Energy, said Nevada's opposition to the proposed facility made the site unworkable. Nevada basically didn't want it, and at the time, their, one of their senators was Harry Reid, the Democratic leader in the Senate. NRC, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, has nearly exhausted its carryover nuclear waste fund money, would need a congressional allocation to continue. The industry supports the project, will continue to seek funding for it. That's nice. Asked whether some in the industry might consider Yucca Mountain not worth fighting for much longer. Maria Kosnick, president of the Nuclear Energy Institute, said... It's taken so long, I think it's fair for anybody to question whether or not it can actually come to pass. For a second nuclear industry official, the fact that the federal government has collected more than $30 billion from customers of nuclear plants since 1983 for a disposal site and still lacks a repository. That's among the factors it could signal. It's time to move on to another site in another state. Who wants it? Hands? Nuclear... Nuclear waste storage. You, your, your hand is not up. Okay. The former top regu- regulator of nuclear power in the United States, in the midst of an international crisis, he promoted U.S. plants as operating safely and securely, now says in a new book the U.S. should abandon the, quote, failed technology, unquote, altogether. I now believe nuclear power is more hazardous than it's worth, says Greg Jasko writing in Confessions of a Rogue Nuclear Regulator, based on his three years as chairman of the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, because the industry relies too much on controlling its own regulation. Gee, that never happens anywhere else in the government. He writes, the continued use of nuclear power will tend to, will lead, sorry, to catastrophe in this country or somewhere else in the world. This is a truth we must confront, he says. He says he isn't trying to scare people with his warnings. I'm just trying to be honest. I went rogue by being honest. When asked if the 59 commercial nuclear sites in the United States and their 98 reactors are as safe as they could be, Jasko replied, No, I don't think they are. He led the NRC during the Fook thing. I think the industry right after the accident, came forward and offered a number of alternative solutions to dealing with the kind of accident you had at Fook. Cheaper solutions, easier solutions, Jasko said. The uh, NRC declined a request for an interview regarding uh, Jasko's commentary. It says the NRC continues to conclude every U.S. operating nuclear plant can maintain public health and safety even if severe events affect a plant's installed electrical power systems. It says it has addressed other safety issues that came to the fore after Fook, like greater hydrogen control at reactors or steps to mitigate possible damage from earthquake-caused fires and floods, which experts say are exceedingly rare. But to be fair, so are experts. Clean, cheap, too safe to meet her, our friend the Adam. Well, ladies and gentlemen, one thing you can hang your hat on, one thing you could take to the bank, the end of the shutdown doesn't mean the beginning of the shut-up 
There's going to be more yakking about all of this. The yakking that I think gathered a deserved amount of attention this past week was when Wilbur Ross, the U.S. Commerce Secretary, Secretary of Commerce, and a multimillionaire, industrialist, was asked uh, what was his opinion about federal workers who, during the shutdown, were being forced to, to at times, uh, resort to food banks and other ways of supporting themselves and their families. Well, I know they are, and I don't really quite understand why, because, as I mentioned before, the obligations that they would undertake, say, a borrowing from a bank or a credit union, are, in effect, federally guaranteed. So the 30 days of pay that some people will be out, there's no real reason why they shouldn't be able to get a loan against it. There was a lot of criticism of Wilbur Ross for saying that. But maybe he had a good reason. Are you a federal employee hurt by the government shutdown? Have you endured the humiliation of visiting a food bank or being threatened with eviction? Well, here's good news. Hi, I'm Wilbur Ross. And if you're afraid a loan from a bank or credit union will take too long, you're right. But you'll want to hear what I have to say. Now federal employees can borrow direct from me. That's right. RossLoans.com is the fast, painless way to get the money you're owed by the government, but not from the government. You take the dollars, I take the risk. RossLoans.com is as easy to use as your favorite non-porn app. Just a five-minute online application process gets you your money as fast as you can get to your favorite ATM. The best news is, as a furloughed federal employee, you're pre-approved. The second best news is you owe no interest until after the government reopens. Then, 24 easy-to-plan payments is all it takes to put you back where you belong, in the black. Best of all, when your government salary resumes, you can apply for reimbursement of the interest payments and we'll get Congress to approve that, even if it takes a government shutdown. So don't sweat the loss. Get to Ross. You can be paying your rent and buying your groceries even before I make my next million. RossLoans.com. We put the com in Commerce Secretary. Terms and conditions apply, but not really. Don't turn. Don't toss. Get to Ross. I got sunshine in my pocket, got that good soul in my feet. I got hot blood in my body when it drops, oh no. And I can't take my eyes off it, moving so phenomenally. Room on lock the way we rock it, so don't stop. Cause under the lights, everything good. Nowhere to hide when I'm getting you close And when we move, you already know So just imagine, imagine, imagine I can't stop the feeling Feeling so just dance, dance, dance. Can't stop the feeling so 
of the week when else you know what I'm saying so sorry. I don't know what I'm saying the Library of Congress has apologized for posting a birthday tribute to Stonewall Jackson it was on his birthday but it was also Martin Luther King Day you see you don't want to be doing that the National Library tweeted today in history Confederate General Thomas Stonewall Jackson, born 1824, linking to a profile of the rebel leader. Some, you know, call them rebels, some call them traitors. But the library, by late that night of Martin Luther King Day, had apologized for the timing of recognizing Jackson on that day. We published a post earlier today that was pre-programmed from our Today in History site about Stonewall Jackson, because January 21 was the date of his birth. We sincerely regret publishing this tweet on the day that we celebrate the legacy of Martin Luther King Jr. Stonewall, be born on another day, will you? Vogue magazine has apologized for misidentifying Muslim-American journalist Noor Taguri as a Pakistani actress in its February issue. The 24-year-old said she was, quote, heartbroken and devastated, unquote, after discovering that Noor Bukhari's name had been printed next to her picture. Noor Bukhari as opposed to Noor Taguri. Taguri said misrepresentation and misidentification was a constant problem for Muslims in the U.S. She received widespread support on social media for speaking out. She shared a uh, video captured by her husband of the moment she opened the issue of Vogue for the first time. That's so cool, I'm freaking out. Then when she notices the mistake, she says, hold on, hold on, are you kidding? 
In the post, Tagore said, appearing in Vogue was one of her dreams. Dream bigger next time, babe. <laughs> and that she never, ever expected this from a publication that she respected so much. Last year, her pictures were used to illustrate stories about Noor Salman, the wife of a gunman responsible for a mass shooting at the nightclub in Orlando, Florida. Because they share the first name, Noor. She has appeared in TED Talks and campaigns and was the first Muslim to appear in Playboy magazine wearing a hijab. Vogue said it was sincerely sorry for the mistake. We were thrilled at the chance to photograph Tagore and shine a light on the important work she does and to have misidentified her as a painful misstep. We also understand that there is a larger issue of misidentification in media, especially among non-white subjects. We will try to be more thoughtful and careful in our work going forward. We apologize for any embarrassment this has caused Tagore and Bukhari, said Vogue. A more thoughtful Vogue. Are we ready for that? A St. Louis newscaster apologized on air, saying his mispronunciation of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s name that included a racial slur was not intentional in any way. Kevin Steincross was speaking on the nation's morning news show about 5.34 a.m., when he said an upcoming tribute to the civil rights icon at St. Louis University would honor, quote, Martin Luther Kuhn Jr. I want to take a moment to apologize, Steincross said on air a little after 9 a.m., three and a half hours later. We've heard from a viewer about our mistake I made in our 5 a.m. newscast. I unfortunately mispronounced his name. Please know I have total respect for Dr. King, what he meant and what he continues to mean to our country. This was not intentional in any way, and I sincerely apologize. A representative for Tribune Broadcasting said it was an unfortunate mistake. The station will not take additional disciplinary measures against Steincross. He's already doing the 5 a.m. shift. What more can they do? The NAACP in St. Louis County called it very disappointing. The apology marks the latest in a series of broadcasters making the same mistake, the same mispronunciation of King's name, sparking debates over whether they reveal racism or were just simple mistakes. Representative Peter Welch, Democrat of Vermont, apologized for claiming in a tweet that it has never been legal in the U.S., quote, to make people work for free, unquote, before the current government shutdown. Some pointed out that Welch was overlooking the United States' history of slavery. He then offered his sincere apologies in a follow-up tweet and said, there's been nothing worse in the history of our company, of our country, than slavery. Sincere apologies, nothing worse than br the br brutal inhumanity of the horrible, relentless, and savage infliction of involuntary servitude, slavery, on millions of people whose freedom was denied. Nothing, he tweeted. He was, uh, in his original tweet, promoting a bill that would make it illegal to require federal employees to work without pay during a government shutdown. But that's all over now. Film producer Jack Morrissey apologized for joking about MAGA kids going screaming hats first into the wood chipper. The tweet was accompanied by an iconic image from Fargo in which a dead person's blood flies from a wood chipper. Just run one reason I've never seen that movie. It was something I did not give any thought to, Morrissey said. It was just a fast, profoundly stupid tweet. I would throw my phone into the ocean before doing that again. He uh, has directed films, uh, produced films in the Twilight franchise. 
He quickly detweeted the leet and apologized, but Sarah Palin and other critics slammed him on social media. Good to know Sarah Palin's still around. The Florida State football team apologized for a photoshopped graphic showing Martin Luther King Jr. doing their signature tomahawk chop. Seminoles tweeted the image from the team's recruiting account, writing, Happy MLK Day. Then the account later apologized, saying the post was a well-intentioned effort to recognize the civil rights leader. Never, never enough Martin Luther King Jr. Day apologies. The University of Oklahoma students involved in a racist video showing one of them in blackface have both issued public apologies in letters issued jointly and provided by the university's public relations staff. Francis Ford and Olivia Urban, both sophomores at the time of the video, apologized for it and for any harm they have caused. It was sophomoric. What do you want? Urban wore blackface and using and used a racial slur. The president of the university said both students would not be returning to campus in his uh, press conference. On the night of January 18th, I made the most regrettable decision of my life, Urban writes in her apology. I went against my common knowledge and disrespected a community I love. I'm deeply sorry to the individuals, families, and communities that I hurt. My heart hurts to see the traumatic impact my words and actions have had on those who've been hurt on my behalf. Wow. She really is sorry. Nissin, not Nissan, has issued a groveling apology after getting accused of whitewashing the tennis player Naomi Osaka in an ad campaign. Nissin is a Japanese instant noodle maker, began sponsoring the tennis player a couple of years ago. The athlete has since gone to become one of the best players in women's tennis. Nissin launched its Hungry to Win campaign, but uh, there were no women to speak of in the commercial said uh, one newspaper writer. Instead, I find a whitewashed presentation of Osaka, everything that distinguishes Osaka from your typical Japanese anime anime character was gone, and what was left, your typical Japanese anime character. Nissin has since apologized and has pulled the video from YouTube. Ouch, that's gotta hurt. The apologies of the week, ladies and gentlemen. It's a copyrighted feature of this broadcast. Gentlemen, that's going to put the lid, screw it right back on this week's edition of the show. Keeping it fresh till next week. Not this week's edition, just the concept, the thing. When uh, on radio, we'll be back at the same time and on, I guess, these same stations. Fingers crossed. And uh, on your 
other audio devices of choice. Hello, Alexa. Turn on the show whenever you want to talk to talk to an inanimate object in your home. And it would be just like just talking to animate objects if you'd agree to join with me then. Would you already? Thank you very much. Uh huh. A tip of the show chapeau to the San Diego, Pittsburgh, Chicago, and Chicago and Hawaii desks. Thanks as always to Pam Halstead and to Thomas Walsh at WWNO New Orleans for help with today's program. The email address for the show. Yeah, I know. It's so last decade, but we still maintain it. I still read it. It's easy. Nobody ever uses it. It's quick for me. The email address, I say, and your chance to get Cars I Talk t-shirts. Wow, what a Valentine's Day present that would be. And you can also get playlists of the music heard here on all at harryshearer.com. And, um, yeah, I think despite the column in the New York Times saying, get off Twitter... Bye. I'm on Twitter at the Harry Shearer. The show comes to you from Century of Progress Productions and originates through the facilities and grand facilities they are of WWNO New Orleans' flagship station of the Change is Easy Radio Network. So long from Santa Monica, the home of the homeless.